Making it in business isn't about spreadsheets, this or that. It's about guts, tenacity, and above all, street smarts. Join Sarah Shaw as she talks with successful entrepreneurs about all the hard-won lessons they've learned on the mean streets of the business world. If you've ever felt stuck, stifled, or even just scared to get out there and make your mark, you'll learn how even the most successful entrepreneurs overcame failure and found the power to move forward. So forget about learning about business in school, because all you need to make it big is a street smart MBA. And here's your host, Sarah Shaw. Hello, and welcome to a Street Smart MBA. And I'm really excited because I am here today with Farnoosh Torabi, who is one of America's leading personal finance authorities. Uh, she's hooked on helping Americans live their richest, happiest lives. From her early days reporting for Money Magazine to hosting a primetime series on CNBC and writing monthly for O Magazine and Mint.com, she's become a favorite go-to money expert and friend. Millions of Americans turn it, uh, tune into Farnoosh's award-winning podcast called So Money, which made its debut in January of 2015 and which I have been on. And I'm so excited to have you on my podcast. Thank you so, so much, Sarah, for having me. This yeah, is such a treat. So, <laughs> I love I love being able to trade and I love being able to talk to people who have authority in places that, you know, I think I know about, but I'm not and I don't consider myself a finance authority in any which way on this earth. Um, but it interests me and I always have had an interest in money. I I, you know, obviously most people have an interest You're in really money. You're really good at making actually, it. I'm good at making it, but I also have an interest in finance, like how, you know, and how you keep the money, how you invest your money, how you keep your money going. And also, and kind of at the same time, not having money be a taboo, right? Not having it be something that's scary or that your people are afraid of, you know, so many people want to have money, but they're afraid to actually have it, you know? And so... I want to talk a little bit about your life growing up. I know your parents uh, immigrated from Iran and that were you born in this country? I was by just stroke of luck. I think (laughs) I was born in this country. And I say that with all sincerity to the country of Iran. But let's be honest, uh, in in 1980, it was, I think, probably better for you to be born in the United States of America Mm -hmm. than in Iran. the tumultuous revolution that was going on in Iran. And I, yeah, so our, my parents are immigrants, although I don't think that was intentional. I think that my dad came here to study, get his PhD. And the plan was they were going to pack up and leave after he got, after he graduated, but that, you know, life events kind of forced them to stay put. And for the better, I think that when they saw what was happening back home with all the controversy and the revolution and, um, I'm not going to give you a history lesson on Iran, but basically that was a <clears throat> a very um, sort of I feel like an, a, t- a time when the country was turned upside down in many ways and, and reverted mm-hmm. back to like you know uh, gosh like Stone Age era where you know um, just a lot of people's rights were stripped from them and it became this uh, this very religiously strict country and. My parents, I think I credit them so much because they had the foresight to be like, this probably isn't going to be the best place to Mm. start our life together. And while that was a hard decision, you know, they had all their family in Iran. They thought like, 
they probably just thought, you know what, let's wait it out. <laughs> and, and this is not a good time to go for a host of reasons. So, you know, while I'm here and we have this, he had an opportunity to stay and work with a work visa. Um, then that turned into um, a, a full-time visa, turned into a citizenship, turned into never really, I mean, they go, but they have gone back to visit, but never, uh, never regretting, I think, their mm-hmm. choice to stay. And how did that, you know, you mentioned in um, somewhere that I read that your parents never made money a taboo. And so how, which I think is a great, you know, I was kind of brought up the same way, but how, how did that teach you and help you become who you are today? So much of who I am today is thanks to the fluency with which we spoke about money in my household growing up. I mean, my, my parents are, we're Middle Eastern, excuse me. And I think that with a lot of uh, people from our region of the globe, I think, you know, we're, we're, we love to negotiate. We love to start businesses. We like to talk about money. We're not, we, it's culturally not something that we feel is, uh, is taboo like it is here in the United States. I think I read something that people are more comfortable talking about death and politics and, you know, the fact that they have like, um, you know, X, Y, Z health issue. And we're a lot more intimate about those things. Ironically, we don't want to talk about how much we paid for our homes. Um, we feel like, I think, you know, I understand it. I think we feel like our self-worth is attached to our net worth. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of judgment that gets passed when we talk about how much we paid for things. And um, because it, honestly, like how you spend your money does in some way, I think, reflect your value system, right? And um, it's, we use how we spend and how we save or not save and not spend as a way to measure people's values and personalities and for better or worse. I think that's just Mm -hmm. what we do. Um, I think we still do that in the Middle East, but we, we don't hold it against people. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. We just, we just like to talk about it. We're very curious about money. And growing up, I think that I, I really am thankful for looking back. I mean, at the time, I probably didn't really know the value of it. But we talked a lot about things that were happening that were real, that were happening to my parents at the time that maybe other parents would have shielded their kids from. Things like layoffs mm. in their, that were happening at the company. Things like the fact that my mother was overspending at one point and my, they would have arguments around about money in front of the in front of me. Um, I was an only child until I was about 11 and change. So for a large part of my growing up, I was an only child. And I think that that in and of itself makes you grow up a little bit faster when you're an only child because mm-hmm. you're surrounded by adults, but they also didn't um, keep me or shield me from adult topics like, budgeting and, you know, sometimes the economic strains that were happening in our household because um, my mother, you know, for as forward thinking as my parents are in many ways, I think when it comes to money, they're still in some ways very traditional and that my dad was the breadwinner. He kept a lot of the, the, <clears throat> the financial tracking to himself. And my mother was you know, funny enough, she was the one that made all the purchasing decisions, but didn't really know like what was the reality. Like she just would, I think my dad would give her a budget and she would try to spend within the budget, but sometimes she'd go overboard and then they would have arguments. And then I think from that, I learned that at an early age that as a woman, I just always had to make my own money. And I never, ever Mm -hmm. wanted to be beholden to anybody telling me what I could and could not spend my money on. Um, Amen. You know, uh, same and, here. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. 
Um, and so, do, you, yeah. do you think that, um, and so, so go on. So you're, so you're, so watching your mom, you know, kind of have these budgets that she had to work with and, you know, maybe, you know, the arguments she had with your dad kind of led you to this feeling of fi- wanting to have financial independence and not depend on yes. anybody. Yes. I mean, my parents taught me so many things that I think in some ways contradicted themselves. Like, and I think it's because they were going on their own money journey and learning their own lessons. And I was kind of just shadowing it all. But like in the early years, I was learning that it's not good to be financially dependent on anyone because I would see that through my parents' experience, my mother uh, not working and also not speaking the language. She spoke Farsi Mm -hmm. primarily. And I think that was also a barrier to entry for her to like get out there and work and um, feel like she could participate economically in, in the household. But then I think she even caught up to the reality that like, this is not sustainable, you know? And when we were, um, she went back to school, she learned English, she got her, uh, college degree here. Um, and then started working and I don't think she really liked to work. <laughs> I, if I was, Sometimes if I, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, credit to her yeah. for like, you know, owning that. I mean, like, I don't like right. to work. I think she felt yeah. better um, managing the day to day of the household and, but yet still always appreciated having some level of income. And so while she may have not have always been working full time, I think my mom was always, finding ways to bring in money, whether it was like a part-time job here, part-time job there. Um, And also she was really good at learning eventually how to save the money um, Mm -hmm. as she got a little more. I mean, she was 19 when she moved here. So I can't like expect her to, can't expect a 19 year old to like know anything, uh, Anything, let alone, you know, she's married, a mom, all this is new in a new country. And on top of it, like trying to find her financial uh, identity through it all. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, and I, you know, I, again, I think that it was such a wonderful, uh, way to learn about money is like through my own parents evolution and journey and that, that, that mm-hmm. they never really kept it away from me. I remember my mother taking me to the department store to pay off her Macy's credit card, you know? And I was like, what are you, what are we doing here? I don't understand. <laughs> like we're not, we're, so we're not buying anything. You're just like giving them money. Yeah. She's like, well, I did. <laughs> I know. That was a good question, right? She's like, well, I yeah, did Yeah, my kids ask stuff. the same thing. Like, when, you pay, when I pay a credit card bill, they're like, why are you paying? Why are you paying bills who's on getting the computer? The you know? Yeah, who's getting the money? So. Yeah, <laughs> and she would explain, well, I have this credit card and I did buy things. Like, I bought your school clothes on them and now I am coming to the store to pay it off in full with my cash, mm. which I don't even think you can do anymore. I think you have to do it like, <laughs> over the phone or in the mail or online. But back in the eighties, you could do it still uh, come just walking into the store. And so, you know, they, they took me on these experiences, took me to the bank, took me to the, um, you know, to the store to pay off their debt. And all through all of that, I think it just inevitably makes you have an awareness at the very least. I'm not saying it makes you a money genius, but it gives you awareness. And also I think it, relaxes you around these money topics, right? So that when mm-hmm. you're older, you have a familiarity with it. And whereas my peers, you know, may have not because they just weren't exposed to this, like the mechanics of money as a kid. And now, you know, when I was opening up my first savings account, when I was 16, I had a Roth IRA when I was 16. It's, it's not because I was like super nerdy about money or my parents were, it's just like, why not? You know, mm-hmm. we are underestimating our kids if we think that 
when you opened this bank account and got your Roth IRA, um, it's funny because I have a brother who's this, uh, younger than I am, and I remember that he started his, or my parents maybe did it for him, a, a Roth IRA when he was really young, you know, like in his teens, you know, maybe somewhere between you know, 16 and 19 or something. And of course I was, you know, in my early twenties and before I started mine and, but it's just interesting that you're, that you ended up doing that at 16. I mean, most people don't don't do it till they're like working and somebody says, Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, you can put some money in an IRA. Right. Well, so I got my first job when I was 16 and my first like, you know, job where they take taxes out of your paycheck not babysitting Mm -hmm. money, but I was working as a hostess at a restaurant and I was making, you know, very little money. But my father was like, my parents were like, you got to save half of that. Every time you make money, you should just save half of it. Because really, when you're 16, I was fortunate. My parents would afford things for me, but it still wanted to be able to make my own money. But I didn't really need like a lot of money. You know, I mean, I went to school. I it was things were taken care of for the most part. I didn't have to buy a new car. We just got the old one that my parents um, had been tired of driving. And so I was able to, I mean, I actually still have this Roth IRA and there's like $2,300 in it. Um, <laughs> who, who can say they still have money left from their job when they were 16, you know? Right. Exactly. And I don't I, think I, I really can't Yeah. like, listen, I wasn't excited to go open this Roth IRA at 16. I was like, I want to buy stuff. I want to spend this money and get, you know, cool clothes. And I don't even know what a Roth IRA is, but Growing up in my family, you just did things because your parents told you you had to do them. You didn't question mm-hmm. the authority. And so I just, uh, I was I was a very follow the rules kind of person as a kid because I just knew that meant it was just going to be an easier life for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, still, being a rebel. Think, can, yeah, it was, not, it was not in your car. Yeah. <laughs> being a rebel was not going to work out in my household. Yeah. I would, my mother would threaten us all the time and be like, I will take you to the police station and leave you there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might have heard that a couple of times in our house. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, still think of yourself as a follow the rules person? Yeah, I do. But I find that I'm making my own rules up as well, you know, and um, I still like to, I'm still kind of a people pleaser. It's why I'm, I think I'm in the service industry. I mean, I'm really like somebody who at the end of the day, my job is to help people and, and, and support people and, and, my way of doing it is through their their money issues. But I think that in some ways, I'm also someone who definitely um, has her own kind of rhythm and beats to my own drum because as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to be. And it's mm-hmm. part of what makes you successful is being different and not thinking inside the box all the time and taking chances. And so in those ways, I feel like, and do you hear that again? I don't. Okay, good. Okay, so I'll just keep yeah. going. And in some ways, I just feel like, uh, yes, I play by the rules. I try to do right by everyone. But also, I'm, I'm also conscious that we need to, I need to always be thinking creatively outside the box. And that's not to say that I'm like a rebel, but I think there's a degree of wanting to be different. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, I think, an important trait that everyone should leverage. Yeah, of course, especially when you're wanting to teach something to people, I think, because it sets you apart from other people doing the same thing. Right. You know, you've got you've got your own box of tricks, right, that have worked yeah. for you and that you, you know how to draw upon to help people, you know, get through whatever issues that they have about about money or, um, you know, some of the things you talk about on your podcast. 
especially when you answer people's questions, you know, about getting right. in debt or whatever, you know, whatever they throw at you, um, you know, that you've got your box of tricks that you can open up and, <laughs> and share essentially, right? That's really yours and things that you yeah. honed in but, on, you know, over the years. Yes. And another thing that I'll say about being different is that I never wanted to be different growing up. I wanted to be the same. And it was really, I, and I had a real um, fight with that because I was different whether you, no, ever, no matter how you looked at me, I was different. I had a different name. My parents were different. They weren't, and especially growing up for the first part of my childhood in Massachusetts, nearly everybody I went to school with was Irish Catholic, white, uh, Christian, Catholic. We were not uh, Christian or Catholic. We were not <laughs> Irish. We did not look like anybody else. And my name was Farnoosh. It wasn't Julie yeah. or Christina. And so I had a, I had, a, I kind of had this bout with a huge identity crisis. Like I just wanted my name to be Christina, or mm-hmm. and I, and actually I would, I would, we would move around from sometimes from town to town, and I would just come up with a new identity. I, I tell my parents, <laughs> I want you to sign me up for school, but can we please sign me up as Nikki? Um, yeah. <laughs> or I, I'm signing up for basketball, but I want to be Tina. And they would run with it. Like they were like, that's fine. Which I kind of think that was so baller of my parents to be like, yeah. you know, like, like one time I remember we moved to a new neighborhood and we were meeting the neighbors and we were all outside on the lawn and the, and we were all introducing ourselves and my parent, my mom comes over to me and she's like, okay, so what's your name now? Like, I don't know. Is it Farnoosh? Is it, I like, let's, so I think I, I, Christina was what I, I, cause, and I would pick these names because I had really positive experiences with girls that had these names in my childhood, mm-hmm. you know, or these were the girls that I wanted to be. And I was like, now's my chance to take on a new identity. Right. <laughs> the new me. And be them. Um, and without, yeah. <laughs> it didn't stick. It didn't stick, obviously. And now I'm so grateful for having a, be different. And, you know, it's, it, there aren't many Farnooshes out there. And I'm happy for that. Heck, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can totally relate. My, I was named after my grandmother but she was never called Sarah. She was always called Sadie. And I thought Sadie uh-huh. was a way cooler name than Sarah. And I mean, like nobody was named Sarah when I was Sarah. And so I used to tell everyone I wanted to be called Sadie and nobody would ever call me that. <laughs> They'd do it for like one dinner and then they, yeah. everyone would forget about it. And that would be the end of it. <laughs> yeah. But, know. Um, you know, I like my name now. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, some advice that you might have for product-based entrepreneurs. So, you know, like obviously when you're launching a product-based company, it's pretty capital intensive. And so do you have any tips to stay on track, like software people can use or, um, you know, and like how do you budget? Like how would, how would you tell a startup to budget? So that they, you know, let's say they were like, oh, I've got, you know, $5,000 to start my business. And, you know, kind of what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about, you know, turning, turning, getting a business going? Yeah, well, if all you have is $5,000, I wouldn't quit your day job yet. I think that, you know, and you know this well, Sarah, I mean, you didn't quit your day job for a number of years until like you started to really have excellent cash flow. And mm-hmm. uh, in, in the meantime, just leverage your existing job in turn, because a job is, yes, it's time consuming and you may not feel like you can dedicate a lot of time then to this 
side gig or side hustle that you want to ultimately turn into a business. But, you know, when you're at work, you have health insurance, hopefully you've got your retirement plan, you've got you got a free photocopier, <laughs> you've got a supply room, you know, it's like use all that stuff. And then you've got people that um, you can bounce ideas off of and, during the day. And, and so I would say don't poo poo the day job. Um, because there's a lot of benefits to, to continuing working while you're, you know, fine tuning this side gig. And I think once you have, once you get to a place where you've got relative, not, I wouldn't even say it doesn't have to be consistent income, but it's enough where now you've got a, a nice nest egg that you've been accumulating from this project or this product that you've been selling. And um, you feel that uh, you have also in your personal financial life, your ducks in a row. So you have to kind of have, you're, you got to look at your life, your financial life as on the one hand, it's the personal and the, and the other, on the other side of the wall is business. And I don't really like to cross paths with your money in, in personal and business. So with personal, anyone hoping to start a business, you want to make sure you have some personal financial runway so that knowing that there's cyclicalities in business and that there may be some months where you're not making any money and some months you're making a ton of money, you want to be able to cover the gaps with your own savings and to be able to still keep the lights on, still be able to pay your bills without fearing that you're not going to be able to make it through the month. Um, and preferably you'd have somewhere like between three and six months of personal savings so that you can um, tap into that savings if need be, if the income is not, is not sufficient from the, from the product that you're selling. And so simultaneously, I think you want to have a business savings account where you're also keeping some money. Maybe it's like a two or three month lead of, of income so that if your vendors don't pay you on time or there's a delay or there's a slow month that you can also continue to pay the, for the infrastructure and all the related expenses of running the business, even though you're not actually making money, if that makes sense. So that your, mm -hmm. your financial, personal financial life can, can like stay, uh, above water, head above water, and your, and your business can stay head above water, no matter what kind of slowdown you experience. And hopefully you're at a stage where you've left your job, business is brisk. So you're not going to have like three, six months of dead time, you know, that maybe there will be those months occasionally that things won't go your way, or there was an account you were expecting it fell through. But it's not going to mean that it will be the end of your business as a result of it. Um, right, not, I not see, crippling. Yeah, it's not going to cripple your business. Um, you know, clearly a lot of business owners take out loans and family loans, and that can definitely be a part of um, how you structure your finances. But I wouldn't, I would try to limit the usage of that debt, really it's debt, to an emergency. That you're really putting your own capital towards the running of this business and the, the risk taking within this business as much as possible and that you have this other money, these, these loaned out monies to help you in the event of um, an emergency or, you know, a really terrible season um, to help because, you know, it's really easy to use free money. And I think mm -hmm. that when you use your own money and you can attest to this, probably you make mm -hmm. much better decisions, right? Cause it's like, mm -hmm. this is actually my money and you know, what a way bigger earn effort. It. Yeah. Yeah. So you put in a way more, way bigger effort when it's your money. Right. You think twice, three times, a hundred uh -huh. times about a, a move. Whereas like, oh, Aunt 
Laura gave me a thousand dollars. I'm just going to put that towards blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and you, and it, it doesn't feel as, um, much, it's not as painful, I think, um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't, you know, it was just a, a loan. And maybe she was like, pay me back whenever. And so you don't feel this right. like, you know, burden. Uh, right. So, so yeah, at the minimum. And I think it's important to also be debt free when you are ready to turn off the lights uh, at your corporate job or your desk job and, and take, you know, and throw in the towel. I think it's important that if you have any credit card debt, you've eliminated that because that's going to also be um, a setback for you. And you're not going to be able to make, I mean, business is risky, right? How many risky decisions are you faced with every week, every day? And, you know, should I open the, open up a store here? Should I work with this vendor? Should I start this new line? Should I change my prices? And so you want to be able to afford yourself this like a way to experiment, right? Because that's the only way you're going to learn and grow your business. But if you're totally financially strapped, you're going to have to be very rigid in how you run the business. And that's, I think, to the detriment of the business because it's through the failures that you learn. And so you want to be able to get in a place where you can afford failure, uh, literally afford it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I, th- I always felt too, because, you know, all the times that I was, you know, in financial dire straits <laughs> with my handbag company at certain times, you know, it, especially the first year or two, it was, it, it really um, encroaches on your creativity because you're so worried about money all the time that it's really hard to be creative and let that side relax enough to get the ideas going. So you kind of end up worrying about the money and freaking out and then that ruins your design ability and your capability to be creative and then that crumbles because you you know so it's kind of this whole downhill slide I think that kind of starts with having having enough money in the bank so that you're not in this panic mode all the time I hear from entrepreneurs all the time on my podcast is like you got to give yourself some as they call it financial runway you know the Mm -hmm. ability to uh you know and so that may be like six months of savings a year of savings so you're not shaking in the boots every time you have to make a financial decision for your business that you can. And like Barbara Corcoran, you've had her on your podcast and mm-hmm. um, I've had the experience to work with her and interview her. And she says, you know, one of the things that she does in her business still is like, and I mean, she can afford it now, but even in the beginning, she calls it throwing money, uh, throwing money against the wall. <laughs> and by mm-hmm. that she means like, putting money into ideas, throwing those ideas against the wall. And she's like, nine out of 10 times, those ideas won't stick, but one will. And it will be the fruit of your, it will be so uh, beneficial that it will make up for all the times that you lost money. But you Mm -hmm. have to be able to be in a place where you can afford that risk and be comfortable with that risk. Because that's really, at the end of the day, what has driven her success and I think can Mm -hmm. be extrapolated to other businesses. Yeah, I, I, like, I actually really like that about her. <laughs> and I, I love how she's such a risk taker in a conservative way, but she still has like a little bit of a wild side, I guess. She's a um, rebel for sure. I yeah, love her to death. Yeah, yeah. And what about, like, I know that you've got some brand partners, you know, like Mint or Intuit. And do you, do they have, um, or do they provide any kind of software or methods or do you recommend anything for people to track sure. their finances? What do you suggest? Sure. So I'll tell you what I do. And I, I think um, I'm not, I, you know, it's, someone asked me today, like, what are you doing as a result of the Equifax bre- breach? And I was like, 
Um, well, I'm not freezing my credit because I, w- I might be in the market for a mortgage this year and that would be annoying. Um, but I'm, I am very vigilant about checking my bank account, my credit statements all the time. And I've always been that way. And now on top of that, your bank is also eyeing every single transaction because if they can't if they can't secure their clients' money, like no one's going to bank with them. So it's, uh-huh. their, uh, their, it's their number one priority is, is fraud protection, um, probably after you know, convincing you to give, you, give them all your money is, uh, right. is fraud <laughs> protection. Um, but I check my bank balance daily. I, um, I also have an account with Mint where I'm also, full disclosure, a, a brand partner with Mint and I blog for their website. And Mint's been around forever, one of the very first financial apps. At first it was a website, now it's an app, but really a great way to sort of see all your financials in one place. And what I would love for them to do one day is to kind of be able to merge your accounts with like a partner. Um, you can still do that, but it's uh, it's not separated in the sense that like here's Farnoosh's money and here's her husband's mm. money. It's all kind of like in one on one big dashboard without labels. But um, I do like it. In, in any case, because it gets allows me to kind of see my net worth and not just my savings, but also where I am with credit card debt at that month and my mortgage. And it kind of does a lot of the computations for me. And it's good. It's good to just keep track and be in the know um, because that's when you start to pick up on some weird movements. Like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I, how did I, I thought I had, you know, I had $50 yesterday. Now I have 15 and I didn't spend any money. And so it, it creates, <laughs> this like uh it it makes you more conscious and that's Mm -hmm. always good i i do use quickbooks for my personal and business account from actually for my business accounting and not for my personal accounting but for my business accounting i have a i have a bookkeeper that helps me with just organizing all the or all the expenses and categorizing it and the balance sheet um, which makes it then easier and faster for my accountant to do my taxes and i probably save money in the end because I have Mm -hmm. an inexpensive bookkeeper who's doing it for me. My CPA would charge me a lot more money to do it himself. Um, What else? I mean, there's so many apps, right? I've had so many founders on my webs, on my podcast, people who have started these incredible apps that really incorporate like are the psychology of human beings in, in that we hate to save. We're short term focused. We don't save for retirement. Um, to help us to get to kind of um, have a better financial life. And so one example is Digit, D-I-G-I-T. And the website mm-hmm. is digit.co. And I'm not a partner with them. I'm just a real fan of, of their work. And so this it's a relatively new app. And what it does is it helps people save incrementally over the days, weeks, and months in ways mm. that you wouldn't have been able to do on your se- by yourself. And then suddenly by the end of the month, you've got $300 that you didn't know you could save. And right. <laughs> it, you hook it up to your bank account and it starts to analyze how much you earn, how much you're spending and starts to kind of has its own algorithm. And so every so often it will text you and say, Hey, Sarah, uh, based on how much you earned this week and you know, your spending patterns, let's save $6. And you're like, sure, who doesn't want to save $6? It's always these right. really small amounts of money. But they do it consistently enough where, again, by the end of the month, you've got a lot saved. And they have saved overall, all their users collectively have saved millions of dollars. Um, wow. So it's definitely moving the needle. And I love, 
I love it because it does the the reason he does it the way he does it that he's designed the app the way it is is because one people aren't saving on their own. Two studies show that when we do it automatically and painlessly, it's more likely that we will save. And um, you know now everything is hooked up to your phone, so if you can right. save on the go with a text, like how easy is that? There's nothing easier. <laughs> yeah. It, it does. It is easy. And I, and I, and I, you know, I am one of those people who has auto withdrawals going into different bank accounts every month because otherwise I'd never save any money. You know, if it's in there, I just, yeah. think I can spend it. <laughs> you have to oh, sort of set it. Yeah. Set, set up the framework mm-hmm. and then it's, it's something you do once and then you can mm-hmm. go on with the rest of your life. I do the boring stuff first so that I, whatever money I have left, I know I don't have to feel guilty about spending it on something that I want to do for fun because I've already taken right. care of the boring stuff. I've already paid right. my insurance bills and my savings account and my investment in the college savings. So like whatever's right. left, um, I'm good to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun money. Oh, uh, I, I love fun money. So I want to, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about your book, um, when she makes more. And so I, I, I love that you wrote about this because it's, uh, you know, obviously a huge problem and can be in relationships or um, just, you know, either personal relationships between men and women, um, husbands, wives. Um, and, and I imagine too, it can be, you know, cause I've, I've been an entrepreneur for so long, I've never actually worked in the corporate world, but I'm sure it can be a, a problem in the corporate world as well. But you, you know, kind of hit it head on. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> where do mm-hmm. I start? What's the most interesting thing to you? I want to be able to like, Well, for me, it's really like how, because I've kind of, I've always experienced this my whole life, just in in most of my relationships with my ex-husband, you know, it's when I remember dating, you know, years and years, I mean, we're talking like, let's just go back even 20 years when I was dating a lot, you know, and, you know, guys would come over to my, I bought my first house when I was 29. Like I told, you know, I've told you that. And it was such an important thing to me on my 29th birthday, I signed the deal and I was like, yes, you know, and then I never thought about, you know, what anyone would think about me, you know, and, but then when guys would come over, you know, we maybe been out on a couple of date or two and they're like, they're, this is the response. Wow. You live here. And it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like, it was a teeny tiny, like, <laughs> you, live you know, here? we're talking barely yeah. even a thousand square foot house, you know, and super on the edge of the ghetto in LA. It was all I could afford. Like when I bought the house, my sister was like, you live here? Oh my God, aren't you scared of all the helicopters mm-hmm. and like the drug dealers? You know, and then that's her response, you know, for my safety. And then these other guys are like, wow, you live here? Like I live in a Yeah, you don't have a roommate? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or four roommates. And so it was, that's kind of always been something I've been up against, you know? And, yeah. and so I just, that, that's, I'm really was curious and that's why I just love that you wrote about this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I wrote it for, for you, like you're my audience yeah. and I feel very much uh, in the same boat in some ways when I was dating, it wasn't even about even like the fact that I was making a lot of money because I wasn't, I was working, you know, in journalism, which isn't last I checked is not like, you know, doesn't pay uh, mm-hmm. that much. But it right. was that I was so ambitious, I think was like mm-hmm. kind of a turnoff. Um, 
And here's the thing I think that, and I, and I'm speaking very generally because certainly like my husband is not of this statistical group, but there, I think there is a cohort of men from, especially from the older generations, but even the millennial guys, they may say they're cool with being with a woman that makes more, but they actually don't know. I think that, and they may be speaking very, they think honestly, but once they're in that situation, I think it's, it's much more challenging. And here's why Mm -hmm. I think that uh, for forever, you know, we've been associating, like I said earlier, self-worth with net worth. And when you're in a relationship, it's been, it's been spelled out for so many years. Like as a man, you are the one to provide the financial security and so many of our role models. And what we know is that the man plays that role that they, that he is the provider and the protector. Mm-hmm. And women are the supporters and the nurturers. And um, when in some, when I've, and I've interviewed so many men and so many women and the book is called when she makes more and the, the men who are, have been very honest with me, they're like, you know, I arrived at in a relationship um, with this hope and goal. And I looked forward to really like taking care of my family and, and, and to define that, that means taking care of them financially. And when that's no longer required of him or is not really the need, he can feel lost at sea. He doesn't mm-hmm. know what his purpose is anymore. And, mm-hmm. and that's a really uh, stifling thing for some people, like stops you dead in your tracks. Like, okay, so you don't need me to be home, bringing home the bacon. Um, what am I here for then? And so (laughs) it it can, yeah, but I see that as a real opportunity for relationships because assuming that she actually enjoys her role as the one who's bringing home more and, uh, or just enjoys her job and doesn't want to slow down. um, And he's at a place where he's like, well, now what do I do? This is a real opportunity for the couple to talk about repurposing their roles in the relationship. And Mm. in a marriage, if it's a long marriage, the the roles change constantly because, look, she's making more now. She may make less next year. She may not be even working in a few years Um, or she's going to want to start a business. And so there's all this like the the economics of a relationship is constantly evolving. And I think the couples that are the most successful are the ones that just embrace that for what it is. And they take kind of the emotion out of it or, or you know what, they recognize their emotions and they're willing to be candid about them and talk about them. Mm. I think it's really uncomfortable for a man to say in 2017 out loud that he is uncomfortable with the fact that his partner makes more. Um, Mm -hmm. No one wants to admit that, you know, and so we don't talk about it because we don't think it's politically correct. And I always remind people that when you're in a relationship, you're not running for election. You know, you're not running a business. It's completely different. The dynamics are different. You have permission now to really just be yourself. We are in relationships because we want to be accepted and, and understood no matter what we're feeling, how we're feeling it. So, so leverage that and just be yourself and not be worried. And yet I think that the pressures of external pressures of like how we should act outside of the relationship leak into the relationship and we still think in relationships that money means power too. Mm -hmm. And and that's of course something that we do in the real world and business and in, um, you know, everywhere else, but in a relationship, that's not the right equation. You know, money is not power. Um, it shouldn't be, it doesn't mean that one, because one person makes more, they have more authority or say, but that's, that is how people then end up thinking in a relationship Mm -hmm. and that can backfire. So for, for all these reasons, I don't think we're, we have really the, 
I mean, I think we can, I think we can make it. I think, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think there are so many couples that are living examples of how to be successful in a relationship when the economic, the economics have been flipped on their, you know, traditional head. But I, I think that we still need more conversation around this, some advice, community, and, and, and like basically permission to talk about it out loud and not feel like we're going to get judged because, oh gosh, is the woman making more? I don't like it. Or is the guy making less? This sucks for my ego. You know, and right. being able to talk in those terms, I think is really important in order for us to really progress. Because what I hate is that, and I have a daughter and you have two daughters. It's like, mm-hmm. and I got this message and you probably did too growing up that you're a woman and don't ever any, let anyone tell you you can't be whoever you want to be. Go out there, study your butt off, get the job, get the, get the promotion, start your own business, make as much money as you can, protect yourself, mm-hmm. be independent. And so guess what? We do all those things for what? One day getting into a, on, being on a date and being given the side eye because right. <laughs> we own our own place. It's like, wait a minute, you know, so it's a very rude awakening. We get to the top of the mountain and then like no one's there to give us a high five. Um, right. We're all alone. And so I think that it's, if we want to really own the message that we really, if we want to be honest to girls and young women about how they can go out there and kick ass and be whoever they want to be, we have to solve this issue too, of that when they arrive in a relationship, that it's also going to be something that they're going to, be rewarded for and, and that it will be mm-hmm. accepted. And so it's not this false bill of goods. So that's why I wanted to write the book. And, um, you know, I, I, we can talk more about it later, but I think, I think you probably get the, 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 the sort of gist of it. Oh, totally. And I'm so glad. I mean, for me, especially being, you know, a single mom with two kids, two girls, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of girl stuff going on over here. And, you know, and I try, I really try, you know, like you were saying with my kids to make, I, I, we talk about money, they have bank accounts, you know, they opened their bank account when they were sick, like I did with my Aww. grandma, but I, I took them and, you know, they, I have a photo of them standing outside the bank, you know, holding their little bank book. And I was so disappointed that they don't offer those little savings account books anymore at the bank. Like I had when I was a kid, you know, and you go and they write it in and, um, and it was, it was really sad for me because that was such a huge, like I coveted at that book was like, it was like my Bible when I was a kid, you know, I didn't have anything else that was that important. And Aww. so having that little bank book was just, it, you know, really boosted me up as a kid. And, and we talk about money and, you know, like whenever I get new clients, we like, they, we do the money dance and, you know, they, we celebrate <laughs> together and go out to, and we go out to dinner. We have like this tradition. Like the dance you know? of joy from perfect exactly. strangers. <laughs> exactly. And uh, that is exactly it. And, you know, we go out to dinner and we have this celebration because I want, I want them to feel comfortable about that and never feel like it's something they shouldn't talk about. And I love that you wrote this book about it. And um, when my kids are older enough, old enough, I'm going to make them read it. <laughs> Got a few more years to Hopefully go. Hopefully they won't <laughs> need it. But I think that this, this whole, um, so what's happening is really like society is, is rapidly excelling, but our mm-hmm. brains are not catching up to it. You know, our emotions right. are not catching up to it. And, and so I think that there's still a long journey to, ahead. But I think hopefully yeah. for your daughters and our, my children's generation, it won't be as much of a of taboo. Like they'll still be they'll be able to go on a date. And like when they tell their part, their date, you know, I uh, I got a raise. He'll give her a high five as opposed to a like, right. oh, that's that's oh. cool. 
Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the sad face. Yeah. <laughs> the sad dejected face. Um, well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today and for sharing your money story. And um, I'm going to, you guys can find Farnoosh at So Money podcast and I'll have all, all her links here. And I just so appreciate chatting with you. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're an inspiration. It's an honor to be on your show. And um, oh. I look forward to, 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 hearing, to hearing more podcasts. You're really great at this. Oh, thanks. Well, you are too. I love listening to yours. So we will catch up again soon. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for tuning in to A Street Smart MBA with Sarah Shaw. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes anytime, anywhere. And we'll see you on the next one.